Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 258 and part one of my conversation with professor of percussion at the University of Texas at El Paso, Andy Smith. We'll check back in with Andy in a moment. But first, updates. First update, Marching Mizzou. We just had our first home football game of the season, one of which Mizzou needed a late field goal to put away Central Michigan, uh, whatever. But it was the first time since the fall of 2019 that Marching Mizzou was allowed to perform on the field. And that was wonderful. We got to do our full pregame and halftime show, which was our Olympics show. And the opener is possibly my favorite John Williams selection, the Olympic fanfare and theme from the 1984 Olympics. So good. In any case, it was great to have the students back playing in front of a full crowd. Well, it was great and a bit weird because we're still in a pandemic, but overall, everyone was happy to be back in a more normal performing situation. Second update, classes. Aside from co-teaching the usual jazz pop and rock course with my friend and colleague, Dr. Sam Griffith, along with All Things Marching Band, I've got two classes I'm doing for the first time, but I'm excited to teach. Career Music Development and one of our sections of Oral Skills 3, a.k.a. First Semester Sophomore Music. It's a bunch, but I'm excited to continue teaching classes and continue to teach our music majors. Indoors, we are required in Missouri to mask up for those classes. And while that's not preferred... I'm enjoying being back in person, which is very different from my previous semester where all of my classes were online. So I'll take it. Hold on. Me, 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 me. Okay, that's enough of my secrets. Let's get to Andy Smith. I'm pretty sure this is the first time I'm meeting Andy in this interview. I've long been aware of him, mostly through his wife and long-ago previous podcast guest, Amy Smith. But it was great to get a chance to talk to him and learn more about his path to getting to UTEP and his work there. Andy's been involved in the percussion game for quite a long time. His path has taken him from New England, growing up in Connecticut, to Berkeley College and UMass, over to Middle Tennessee State University, and up to Indiana before making his way to UTEP. He's been heavily involved in many different forms of percussion, including drum set, drum line, concert, chamber, commissions, and teaching. He's already had a long and active career, and there was a lot to get to, so you're getting this in two parts. In part one, we get to his current job at UTEP, his last years in the Nashville area, and his upbringing in New England. In part two, coming out next week, we'll get the rest. So here we go. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on August 10th, 2021, and it begins right now. Give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. 
Okay, so uh, assistant professor of percussion. Uh, actually, as of this September 1st, officially in the tenure track line. Uh, but my duties don't really change. So I'm undergraduate, graduate lessons, percussion ensemble, which I think, like many colleagues around the country, is a it's a problem solving of finding the extra time and integrating steel pans and ethnic percussion, et cetera, under one umbrella, uh, one faculty credit load hour or whatever it equates to. Um, I do teach a methods class in the spring only with assistantship, with a, you know, a help from a graduate TA. Uh, and then overseeing the drum line, which uh, I guess if I go into detail, we'll make my answer too long. We can come back to it if you want. Uh, and then some graduate, we'll usually have a, so far one or two graduate percussionists at a time uh, in assistantships, but they've got like a pedagogy, graduate pedagogy course, and then an option for an independent study where we can go deeper on a topic or do a, have them do a, something project-based, usually writing an article with some research, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, and their recitals. But, so, ensemble, percussion methods, graduate, undergraduate lessons, couple pedagogy things with the grads, oversee the drum line, and, and as it is everywhere, oversee everything that has anything to do with somebody needs percussionists in their group, and here and facilities, you name it. So, yeah, and some service outside of that. I help run. One of the things I do that I love is, is um, our, with a colleague, facilitate the freshman, uh, we call it a freshman success program in our area. We just kind of set up a few meetings with some guest speakers. I go in hard on time management types of things and, and don't buy a new car because you'll work all the time. And, you know, I pose the question, or if you're working more than you're practicing, you might want to assess your goals and kind of stuff. But I, I love getting in, into those things with the freshmen. When we bring in great speakers and we use Rich Holly's book about being a music education major or being a music major. That's yeah. my short answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, well, let's expand it a little bit. Well, first off, though, tell me about and how long have you been at UTEP? I've been here five years. This is starting year six right now. OK. And you were saying right before we started that you are you ju this just turned into a tenure track position, correct? That's right. Yep. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you much. And, you know, it's just academics. To me, it's just academic speak or being upwardly mobile, um, you know, within the system. And it's not really changing my activities or duties by, by much. Yeah. But it's an acknowledgement, at least on their end, that they want you around, which is I think is good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So, no, and you know what, there's some benefits there. I mean, some people out there have gone through this and a, a second interview can also go different, different ways in terms of being an, an incumbent. But uh, one of the great benefits is being under the microscope, your colleagues um, get an opportunity to see even more so what your value is and what you're doing. You Do you mean that in, in terms of when they have other people they have to interview 
and they can, there's like a little they can get a little bit of a comparison. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, I maybe you could go there, but no, that's not the way I was looking at it. More more so that, uh, and in my case, sorry, I felt I was valued by my colleagues, by communities, you name it. But it's easy, you know. We're all busy, so being under the microscope like that, it just uh, creates a stage or an environment or a setting where your colleagues have to observe what you're doing. And, and, and maybe that hips them even more so to your value. I definitely hear that. Me, me at, at no point did I factor or do I or have I factored in the other candidates. I just, you know, and we have a small world and all of that. I didn't want to even know about it. You know, it was about me and, and UTEP and our relationship. Right. And it was a rigorous, very rigorous process, which I'm thankful for. Let's go back. So tell me about getting the position where you were before you took the UTEP job. Um, who was there before and kind of what was the what were you what kind of situation were you coming into when you took this position? Well, I came where I was physically at was Bloomington, Indiana. I kind of did a mid-career doctorate. Had uh, previous to that, I was working at Middle Tennessee State University and, and being based in Nashville. So I was working with Lalo Davila, the director of percussion there. Um, I was there for a decade and, and started that by a, a graduate assistantship. But um, so actually, things were going so fantastically at MTSU and, and, and opportunities were expanding. And that was part of what just made me go, yeah, I really want to do this, uh, but in a different capacity than adjunct. And uh, my second child was born and I said, hey, let's uproot and uh, go get a doctorate. This will be great. So, so we did that ultimately at Indiana University. And so we were in Bloomington. And, you know, El Paso, like a lot of people, Many folks, either you've passed through El Paso or you don't know it, have a vague concept of like maybe some vague concept. But um, as soon as I got here, I felt like I, I was welcomed and made a difference setting foot in town and I uh, loved it. It's a great uh, environment. And uh, the students were, were eager for new information. Larry White was here. He was here. He taught 36 years and just a small three or those or something was somewhere else. So he was at UTEP 30 years-ish and uh, it was a good sized studio. So my job was not grow it, but just, just expand and continue to, to build. Um, so it was, it's really, it was an awesome, awesome place and a great fit. And it's one of the most collegial faculties that I've met or worked with, which is fantastic. And I found being a, being a musician with quite a diverse background, including some, among many things, Brazilian percussion, West African percussion, drum set. In past interviews, sometimes that's perceived 
depends on who's interviewing you, but it can be perceived as a negative. In one interview, a chairperson at lunch, I said, hey, why don't, if you did a Brazilian battery, you could do that with the non-majors and keep the percussion ensemble flagship group as your kind of premier group just for the majors. And then afterwards, he introduced me to like an administrative secretary and said, yeah, Andy's interviewing. He's going to do drum circles. So, so the point, you know, the point is misperception and it can be a negative, but one of the, just one of many reasons is great fit here is that none of that was ever seemed to, to even exist in anyone's mind. It's all welcome. You know, if, the, if your students play great in orchestra and in large ensembles, then you're doing your job. And because you bring them some other perspectives, that's not somehow viewed as a negative. So anyway, diversity is appreciated here. Uh, and it's a good sized city, which I think presents many fine uh, things in terms of being a director of percussion. One of the greatest jobs in the world, right? And being in a decent sized city and a, and a rich city like El Paso, interacting with the educators, the percussion specialists, the jazz musicians, the you name it, the hobbyists. You know, there's a Brazilian samba battery, there's somebody doing West African Gembe drumming in the dance studio. Getting in the symphony, an excellent regional symphony in El Paso. So there's so much to interact with here. When this p application was was happening and you you were getting this job, were you done with your doctorate or did you still have? Okay, yeah, I'm done. done. I was. That's great. I mean, you didn't have to write a dissertation while you're teaching full time. That, that that's a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things things worked out well in that way, and. I mean, short version is that because I have a family and had a family, then we, I was not looking for a scenario where I did, I did apply, but I was not look, necessarily looking for that kind of scenario where things were going to overlap or I was going to go for some period and leave the family and do all that stuff. Uh, for me, the time with the kids was, was too valuable. But anyway, yeah, this, this worked out great. And, many, many ways, and I'm very thankful. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about the facilities that you, you walked into there. Sure. Well, uh, it's pretty well equipped. Uh, we have 10 practice rooms for, uh, yeah, uh, it's, I think it's great for a school our size. Um, so I guess it'd be boring if I said what's in all those rooms and all of that, but uh, several Great Rosewood Adams Marimba is a good complement of instruments. You know, two two professional sets of, of uh, Adams timpani and a third a Ludwig set in a practice room. You know, multiple drum sets. We're we're in a, in multiple spaces. There, there's a space in the theater building for the steel pan group. It's like a twelve person size pan group, and that was one of the cool historic things that Larry established. Um, but you know, we've got a um, yeah, enough, enough rehearsal spaces. What we don't have is like a studio space. Um, and the challenge, our greatest challenges are, are in moving. 
and thankfully the students embrace working as a team. They don't complain. I complain that we have to disassemble, half disassemble marimbas to get them in and out of practice rooms, but the students don't. They're used to it. It's because the hallways are narrow. Not only is the door kind of a standard size, but the hallways are narrow enough that you can't turn. So you have to remove the entire upper manual. Yeah. And so that's like a semi-daily occurrence. So that's really our, our biggest uh, adversity, I guess. Sure. And uh, yeah, we're back. A new facility is on the table again, but that's a multi-year process for sure. So we might, we might, uh, I might be here to see that happen. I'll look forward to it. <laughs> but we, we do have much to, to be thankful for, though. Yeah. When you're in your 68th year of teaching there, then uh, it's <laughs> finally approved, Andy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't don't think that will quite happen. Right. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit more about the school of music itself, or what, however it's referred to, and the kind of the place that it has within the university, as well as as, as any kind of important information about the university itself. I mean, I know that it was called Texas Western uh, for right. a while, and it has a famous sports. <laughs> you know, portion yeah. <laughs> that's, that's there. right. Yeah. And you can get a nice, a nice uh, sense of that with, through the movie glory road. It's a great movie. Great movie about, uh, yeah. One of the, one of the most important events in college sports history. Yep. Coach Don Haskins recruiting African-American players from like yards from you know, lots, urban lots, et cetera, around the country. And then, and they won the championship. Pretty awesome. Great movie. Uh, so yeah, uh, this, this, the university started, um, actually on the, on the army base, a small college, I guess for minors and then for their families. And when it expanded to this position, that's kind of, El Paso is like a big U. There's a west side, east side. It's the southern tip, basically the southern tip of the U.S. Rockies, called the Franklin Mountains. And UTEP is just on, just barely on the west side, kind of right by downtown, which is awesome, and right at the mountains. Parts parts of campus are kind of integrated in the mountains, and the, the, the football stadium, the Sun Bowl, is is pretty famous for. The way it's kind of built right in, and picturesque, how it's built into these kind of brown, rocky mountains. But when they located, relocated to this location, uh, it was a college dean, and it, his wife was on like the cover of Time magazine or in a Time magazine looking at uh, the country of Bhutan, and, which is like next to Tibet. And the terrain struck her as very, very similar. And she suggested, well, make the architecture look like this Bhutanese architecture. And so they did. So it's a, it's a really unique and gorgeous campus. And, and they augment that with fantastic fauna, uh, what, what do you call that? Landscaping. <laughs> Landscaping and, and it's just meticulously cared for regional plants. It's gorgeous. 
great space to take walks, especially since my office has no windows. I need to walk outside. There's great places to do that. Uh, the university, and I just learned as I went through some new faculty orientation. <laughs> great term. So it's a, it's a, they call it Hispanically Serving Institution, I think is the term. HSI. Mm-hmm. And, and UTEP has got significant statistics in regard to that. And it's a big part of the mission. It's very much so are primarily, it's 80-something percent of the student population are Hispanic. And it's primarily first-generation college. And so it's an upwardly mobile mission. Um, so it's a cool thing to be part of there. And there was a famous book and I'm, I'm going to, I don't have all the information fresh at the top of my head, but, uh, this was presented recently, this idea, uh, what this author said, he had toured the Southwest. So some people might know what I'm talking about better than me. This author was touring the Southwest, like by bus, cause he wanted to see the, the people up close. Oh, I, I, it's a uh, um, blue highways. I think that's the one, right? Yeah, I read it literally like two months ago. Wow. So I guess I guess in the book, I guess he quoted and he said he found the happiest people in their UTEP faculty because they're you know they're doing their calling, but also have a sense of purpose. Um, and the students are very respectful, but also very uh, eager to learn. To be, be presented with opportunities and challenges, um, so I enjoy that much. There's a good bit of there's a new interdisciplinary building. I think, as with many places, a lot of push toward that, whether it's in, in research or just collaborative projects. You know, on the percussion end, doing what we do. A recent fun project was with theater. They put on Lysistrata and they put it on just in the courtyard outside because of the pandemic and limited performers, limited uh, audience and the percussion. So we had three percussionists be the soundtrack for the performance. And we created the soundtrack and worked with the, the director and the dance choreographer on some concepts. And then I just got to, I got to sit back and be the producer and really facilitate my students through creating material, drawing on various resources and how awesome that was to like bring out, bring in, to, to um, teach, teach some people they could be improvisers when they didn't know they could, show them how to use things that they know. And, uh, you know, they put in a lot of time, but it was a great project. A lot of opportunity like that here. It is a department of music, and I don't know the current number. Pandemics have, have impacted us all, but uh, it's usually around 400, at least at the beginning of the um, school year, to my recollection. And the percussion studio has been uh, close to 30 when you, who is currently enrolled. So we've got a you know, we'll have a couple of students teaching this semester and a grad student or two, and then you'll have uh, maybe a couple who finish their 
ensembles and lessons, and we've got a couple of courses, higher level courses they're completing. I think I've got 20 who are in lessons this fall. You know, and maybe, like I said, 20, 26 or 28 total currently enrolled period. And multiple large ensembles, multiple other ensemble opportunities. We do steel pan integrated into the percussion ensemble. There's a mariachi group. Like elsewhere at Jazz Big Bands, we have a commercial music program as opposed to not necessarily as, a, as opposed to, but we don't have a jazz studies program, but we have a commercial music program and the jazz type activities fall under that umbrella. Um, but as, as well, it's actually a very rigorous program in that it has all the theory and core of any other music program minus you know, the teaching practicum type of stuff. But then it has more arranging, jazz arranging, rhythm section arranging, improvisation classes, and technology classes in terms of music recording and production and business. So it's an awesome program, and um, we're looking, we're talking about the ways that we can really blow that up more. I think currently, sometimes it's misunderstood as like, oh, I, I'm not a classically trained, maybe I'm not a rigorous player, I'll go this route. But actually, no, this is a very rigorous degree. It's a really elite program. But it's a cool opportunity. One of the things we have here that you don't get everywhere is a full rhythm section in the faculty. And really, really high caliber musician, Eric Unsworth, who is a bass professor, jazz bass, Chris Raymond, who's now running the commercial music program, piano composition, etc., and John Mahoney, guitar. And of course, I play drums. And also, I have one of my adjuncts, Demetrius Williams, who's also a great drum set player. Wonderful. So you uh, you also said as part of your duties that you are you oversee the drum line. Yeah. Um, which obviously can mean. There's a range of things that that could be. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what does that mean in your case? Um, I give quite a lot to it. I guess emphasizing the philosophy side, and I do have background in it, and you know, I was fortunate to learn under Tom Hannum and Colin McNutt and, and others. And uh, through UMass, through Star of Indiana, working at MTSU where I was teaching and writing with Lalo and with the trips to basic on at the Crossman before was in Texas for a period. Uh, but so there's things to draw from to bring to the group there. But first of all, I see it as critical to the percussion program. There, those are my students, the percussion studios in the group. And of course, some non-majors, some kind of like career drum corps and, and, and winter activity players. Um, that add a great deal to it. But those are my students, so that means that the time that they spend at it is really, really important. So while my job says, like, just just make sure that it's okay, or like they got music, they have a part, and maybe there's a TA. To me, that's that's not just not good enough. You know, the writing has to, the material has to be prioritized, and the teaching has to be prioritized. So I'm mentoring the TAs. 
we use kind of fourth year uh, seniors or even fifth year, you know, super seniors and some undergraduate teaching assistants as well. So along with the graduates, we can create a nice team. Currently, the experience level of those people is phenomenal. All with drum corps, winter activity, total percussion musicians, uh, very collegial. And so I'm, I'm mentoring them. I'm challenging them with, what's the schedule? Let's write the material together. Um, giving them tasks that are going to grow their skills. So that's a big part of it. I do some writing. And that, that's, to me, very time-consuming. And I always want to, like, move on to, let me, let me pick repertoire for the percussion ensemble. Let me do my creative work. Uh, but but uh, there'll be a piece or a, a something or the pregame and i just it's too important to me so i just go i'm on it i've got a vision for this i'm i'm writing it it needs to be what it what i know it needs to be so all of that the camp is going on right now thankfully with help and with good people in the group you know what i do is i just come and i'm here the whole time i get get in there for some ensemble rehearsals make sure that everyone's on task, that kind of thing. Of course, also taking responsibility for their materials, you know, that they have the best instruments and sticks and, you know, the band will provide some, some innovative percussion sticks to the, to the students. We're taking the best care of them that we can. So all of that in my world is overseeing the drum line. Yeah. But and the, the best time is when you're just actually working with the students. If there's a game day and I'm in town, then I'm there at least for the rehearsal time. And that's just a lot of fun. You know, we've got a beautiful environment. We're outside. I'm famously, I'll say it's a beautiful day for drumming outside. Um, we just make sure that that pace is, is great and bringing different teaching modes to it. What things you might learn in other settings. Use your ears. Watch and learn. I, I, I'm an advocate for a organic process musicians watch and listen and copy right so on purpose i'll i like to bring an instrument a demo instrument rather than like get go up and grab their sticks and play on their drum right okay but there's 30 people trying to see what you're doing so we bring out a demo instrument and i put when i'm teaching i play all the time for one selfishly you know i want to keep my hands moving so i'm playing as much as i can every opportunity even when I'm teaching lessons, we'll have two snare drums, two drum sets, some rumba and a vibe, and play with the students. Um, but I, I model for the drum line as well. So I could go on and on. But, you know, I think the, I guess the punchline is I'm definitely passionate about what they're doing. And, you know, as for, as for anyone, the challenge is then I've got these other demands on me and what an assistant professor, what that means to the university. Yeah. Got it. And I don't get credit load, but it is what it is right now. Sure. <laughs> I get a lot of other value out of it in terms of the impact. On the marching band side, do they do uh, multiple, a new show every week or is it one show that they refine throughout the year yeah it's, it's much more the new show every home game model yeah yeah so to me I, that 
emphasizes the professional musician side of things. That's how I look at that in terms of an opportunity, you know, and that's coming from the philosophy of the associate band director who does the group and the director of bands. But, um, you know, there's some, some smart economy there. Well, it's a new program every home game, but if there's an away game, you might reuse that. Right? We have one that we'll do at least three times because one's a hosted event and one's a home game, and then one is an away event playing a UIL finals, I think you would call it, in uh, San Antonio. So we've instituted a, a concept to the drone line. We're calling it Red Alert Material, and we're going, this is this is the material. That's your, your drum court show. That's what we're going to spend the entire semester on, and then we write to make the other stuff you know, work. And that just means we have different levels of priority. But yeah, it's it's challenging to do that much material for sure. And we're on a three rehearsal a week uh, system as well. So that adds to the challenge. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that, that I've kind of realized over over the years is that is that the there's a, a certain there's like okay, you have the the type of drumline writing that's that's you know more more of the DCI kind of I would I would almost refer to it as like a Fantasia kind of style where where it's 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 more artistic and and um, you know you can take I think some more maybe some more liberty a little like a few more liberties and then there's the, yeah. the the writing the functional writing that is playing pop songs where you can do some of that but you yeah. know what else we need two and four. We need two and four and we, and we need some, a nice strong one. And, and then you can kind of like, maybe there'll be some solo sections where you can throw some stuff in there. Yeah. Right. And, and then to varying degrees on a continuum. Right. And right. I think maybe, you know, if it, if, if it were my show, right. I, I think my preference is kind of in the middle at UMass in those, those days and, and as well at MTSU, it was sort of not a new game every, or a new show every home game, but somewhere in the middle, like a, a couple of big shows and then a, then a uh, Veterans Day thing and another, maybe another show and a few things. Um, yeah, but we're not too far off from that. And, I, I'm, you know, I'm not opposed. It's, I'm happy to serve the, the philosophy of whose job that is. So it's all good. Um, but yeah, on the backbeat side, when I was at MTSU, that band kind of uh, established uh, a style. So every, everything was kind of backbeat, but but leaning toward a little bit more toward a drum corps approach. Usually two, maybe three kind of kind of big, well custom program shows. So there's a backbeat, and I come from a drum set background, and I want the energy of the original concept in there. But then you got to have an activity level, and I, I kind of over time I developed some my own like systems for how to go about it. And you can go to another extreme. When I when I was at Indiana, I I uh, had some fun different roles from time to time. One season, uh, I just they had me checking their snare line like on the Monday night sectional, and I'd ride my bike from my house and get exercise, and I'd just like go for two hours and give what I could to that. 
And then maybe another year I wrote a couple tunes for them. But at least at the time, their approach was, and it's Big Ten, you know, was all the way on the backbeat end of things. They, it's a great big band and they wanted to feel the pulses. And I say they, I mean the directors. Yeah. So that was like, you know, unison bass drums the entire way, not like this phrase and then change it up, but like all the way through, simple, simple, and the tenor's like playing the kick drum and the snare like the whole time. Mm. And uh, so, and I'm, I'm not critical of that. That wasn't my, uh, whatever, not my aesthetic, but that's their, that's their group, right? No, I, gonna, I hear you. Yeah, you're going to have different philosophies and different, different, uh, and uh, otherwise it'd be boring if everyone was doing the same thing. That, yeah, very true. Um, yeah, and, and like, you know, different schools, it's interesting kind of the different schools have different demands on what they do with that, you know, whether it's that they kind of like their fan base expects something new every time they go out or, um, or, you know, and you, or you have the kind of the thing where, you, yeah, you have either like, like a one or two kind of very, like way more built up things that you can do a lot more of the kind of, like you're saying, build out your skill set of, of writing in this particular style that this is your chance to now, this is your chance to write your DCI, you know, much more involved show. And that's going to fit what, what that does the theme of that show would be. Right. One thing, I mean, last thing on my mind with that is what we're doing right now on purpose is making sure that when we're doing the functional writing, that, that, that we don't lose sight of challenging the students, right. giving, giving them opportunities and giving even the staff and myself opportunities to enjoy what we're working on and rehearsing. So now we, we could overdo that too, right? But everything in balance, but that's a key part of our current philosophies. Like, Give them challenges. Don't don't neglect that part of it because you lean so so far on, on like the professional function side. Yeah. Well, and it's also great because you you'll have those moments where you you might get a little bit of of pushback originally because it, it's it's not it, it requires some work, but then that means that the moment when they get it, the students are going to be like, "That is awesome." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're trying to make music ultimately and have some impact, right? Hopefully yeah. we feel something. And usually we feel some things when we achieve something. It is, yeah. It's, it's, I just cross little things off my to-do list. I feel good feelings. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my syllabus was spell check today. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Can, can I tell you about um, something... I guess a, a global project mm -hmm. coming up, uh, go, going with the tenure track opportunities. There's some, some startup funds, some opportunities to kind of jumpstart the project. So what I wanted to do, I love the challenge of like doing a recital and playing multiple instruments, but I also, it's also a pain in the butt, uh, you know, making the time to prepare the hours you put into marimba repertory and then oh i've got to get my gear and get the timpani out and then it's fantastic are you being you know the the music is is a positive but 
what I'm getting at is, can I simplify a little bit? <laughs> and can I use one of my core strengths? So I'm going to do some vibraphone things and some drum set things with the goals of, oh, it can be a vibraphone tour or it can be a drum set tour or in combination. But um, using some startup funds to um, set up some commissions or some solo works. No, and then and then I can ride that wave and do some uh, crowdsourcing, consortium type commissions, write my own things, play existing material, all of that. But um, those those are coming. So I'm excited about getting to kind of embrace being a drum set player or playing that instrument and, and and integrating that with the solo percussion recital side of things and the research side of things. Uh, one of the things that interests me, there's some great music being written for solo drum set right on the contemporary music side. Uh, Alexis C. Lamb's piece so I'm completely unprepared for this interview in terms of my mind being fresh. What is the piece called? Do you know? It's, it's called Post Lightened. It's a great piece. It was a commission by Evan Chapman, mm-hmm. a great musician. Uh, so I told Alexis, it's such a great contribution because it's unique and challenging. It's with track. It sound, it's an art piece. But she successfully also retained some of uh, the lineage, the heritage of the drum set in it, the drum set's role in groove-oriented music. And there's some Brazilian things she put in there because she played in the Bateria at NIU. Evan played in the Bateria at IU, Indiana, with myself under Spyro. And... uh, so that's in there, and she kind of went, went leaned into like looking at the backbeat in a minimalistic way. You have to check out the piece, but so I've, I've commissioned her, I've asked her to write me a piece. Um, but what's so cool about that piece, and a graduate student played it last year, to look at what is playing, what is learning a piece like that for like a total percussionist who maybe doesn't have a ton of playing drum set in a group background what does a piece like that do for them you know as an artist comfort at the instrument i guess that's the best way to put it what does that do for them and it it seems like the answer is actually a lot right and you're you can meet some students where they're at if they're not improvisers or they don't have that experience playing in groups playing the drum set instrument which to me is very much what that instrument is. It's it's, it's it's heritage in oral tradition music. But they do know how to learn a piece for a recital, right? Like they, they get that. So anyway, it's it's to me, it's a recent sort of revelation and also a kind of a path of examination and research. So I'm going to have my students playing some pieces commissioning some pieces for me to play and then have others play those because of course I want them to 
learn the jazz heritage of jazz drumming, heritage of the drum set, period. We always, though, have to make choices in a four four year curriculum or a two year curriculum, and there'll never be enough time. But project based learning seems to reap many rewards. So that's on my mind, and in, and uh, going down going down that path in a variety of ways. I'll also have some vibraphone music written both with track and without. That's that's awesome. It did make me think of something that was actually related back to your to the job itself. Um, how you phrased that, because there are a couple of things that that I wanted to get some clarification on. One was. Uh, because you've been there as long as you have, do you, are you able to count any of your years towards, uh, you know, towards promotion? So that's the right. first thing. And then the second thing is, were the startup funds kind of, you know, something you got because it the, the, the thing turned into tenure track? Or did you actually um, kind of straight ahead negotiate some of this? The answer to both of your questions is the system. <laughs> The uh, startup funds are, are kind of built into the system. I guess maybe case by case they may they may vary. I suppose you could get none or or maybe much more in the science uh, field. Sure. But yeah, there's a, a little bolsa or a little uh, fund there that was kind of anticipated anyways, and then it just required a good plan, beginning with a specific general plan and then a very specific plan became due uh in the summer and i'm laughing because like i had to write it while i'm traveling you know and it's like it's academic and it's writing the same it's asking the same question like multiple times yeah and also asking you to predict like everything you're going to do for the next two years in detail right but, you know it is what it is Sorry, help me. You asked about the startup funds and and whether your previous years there counted. Oh, right. Towards. Again, the answer is the system. So UTEP responded very system oriented to that question, which was, um, I guess, where it stands is the third third year review is expected to happen um, when it happens, mm -hmm. and that then. If proven exceptional, one could potentially go up sooner than year five. Gotcha. Yeah, so there might be a little bit of room there, but not something that was quite negotiable in terms of uh, something concrete. That makes sense. No, it does. It does. When when positions like yours turn into something, you know, bet like the next, the better step, basically, or the more permanent thing. Yeah, that's always a, a kind of can be a either a contentious thing or for some for some uh, professionals, it's just like, OK, well, this is the system. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to let it roll. Yeah, I mean, on the unfortunate side, it's like. Not only have I been doing those things that they're looking for in the past five years, but for the past 30 years, right? <laughs> Like, okay, you know, I started publishing and performing and doing traveling and doing clinics, like, as a master's student, you know, with gratitude to Lalo Davila because he acted as a mentor and he did that for me. He passed gigs to me. No, I can't do this state day of percussion 
call Andy. And I'm grateful to that. I don't, not everyone gets that on their graduate degrees. Thank you, Lalo. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, you know, you, it would be nice if they would look at your CV and go like, what more, what more are we asking for here? You know, but they, there's a system in place and things to be tracked and a, and a committee to do its job. And so there you go. Yeah. I got you. Well, cool. Well, Andy, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Connecticut. Yeah. Enfield, Connecticut. It's on I-91, uh, which is where you find Hartford. And then you find Springfield, Mass. Enfield is right at the state line before you get to Longmeadow and Springfield, Mass. You know, one of the opportunities there, there's jazz in schools. So outside of band class was daily jazz ensemble. And I credit that to just a lot of a lot of opportunity to play daily. That was an early value and a, and a great teacher around. I started formally around age 10, but around 14, met Frank Jaguer. He was like the guy. Everyone said, oh, I could, you know, I could maybe show you something, but you really need to go study with my teacher, Frank Jaguer. Or, hey, have you heard of Frank Jaguer? You need to go study with him. He's a great drummer and, and just a really organized, great teacher. And with, with all my pedigree, Massachusetts, Nashville, Bloomington, you name it, I still use Frank's organizational methods and tools on any instrument. But yeah, Connecticut. And then I, I went to Berkeley College of Music for two years. Several great teachers and, and opportunities and experiences there. And then went to UMass to finish my undergraduate. And because I had been, UMass is, had been kind of the star and, and is the, the star university band and drum line, like in the region for sure, and still is in our powerhouse program. So that was something that attracted me. And ultimately, UMass had like the whole thing, the music ed program and great jazz program, incredible uh, drum line and percussion program on that side of things under Tom Hannum. Peter Tanner was there. Yes, and then I mentioned doing a master's with Lalo, which was, for me, that was about, I kind of wasn't ready to just like, I'm going to move to New York City you know, at age 22, maybe. Um, and at a PASIC, it's one of those one of those things, small world, I was at a PASIC, and Lalo was like talking to Tom Hannum and going, yeah, I need a graduate TA who could do the drum line and like maybe played, you know, in my salsa groups or whatever. And, and uh, Hannah says, how about Andy? He's right there. <laughs> so, that's how I hey. Yeah, like that's how, that's how that happened. I was at a PASIC that was in Nashville. And uh, so that happened. Stayed in Nashville, you know, for a time. And the question of where I grew up, another great thing about New England is, I mean, of course, it's dense, right? And, and you're in the next town in the next city and there's just so much going on. And that was part of the early influence for me in, in music was like, you're at a musical theater thing and then there's a parade and there's bagpipes and, and like 
traditional drum corps in order to parade. Getting to hear that, the, the traditional rudimental drumming, I really value that. It's, you know, that's something we like to incorporate in, in what we do. And in other parts of the country, the students, like, they don't hear it. They don't know what the, what the style should sound like. Mm-hmm. But I got to grow up around some of them. You know, and meanwhile, my mom was playing Paul Simon. And I was hearing Steve Gadd before I knew I was hearing Steve Gadd. The diversity of culture in New England is a great, great, great thing. Was drum set your first percussion instrument that you, you got started in then? Yeah, I pretty much like as a little kid was doing pots and pans and tires and, and things, you know, and uh, and a little bit of piano by numbers and all. My mom was into the piano. And uh, yeah, somewhere around age 10, I was like going, there was an elementary school band. And at least in those days in New England, beginning band was like, I, I think it was fourth grade. Yeah, same. So at that time, I was, my friends were like in the band and like playing drums. And I was going like, I think I'm better than those guys are. Like I, I was not impressed with the program or what they were doing. So that was what I said to my parents. I was like, this is happening, but I think I need to find lessons outside. And like, we just went to the music store, you know, and it was all SETI music. Famously, they like have the huge uh, tree of uh, accordion music based in Mass and then Connecticut. Found some good teachers there. So from age 10, I was taking weekly drum set lessons. Kind of that typical, I think there's like a 10 week trial with a snare drum, right? And then it's like, then you're going to, to meet with Mr. Falsetti and it's like a sales pitch and the red drums, the red CP percussion or what, CB percussion or something, drum kit is there. CB 700. And, you know, it's like set up and you can buy, have this now for a, Monthly payment of only this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then it's an opportunity to upgrade you to a Yamaha a couple of years later, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. So then it was only in middle school and high school that I got into the, the organized jazz bands and, and marching band a little bit in high school. Too. At that point, when you're when you're doing, and now I'm focused looking back, looking at marching band at this point. What was the marching band experience like um, at this point in terms of size? I mean, I don't because because I don't recall much of I grew up. So I grew up in, in on Long Island and the marching band culture was very, very small. <laughs> so I don't know what, what it was like for you all in Connecticut at that point. There are a couple of schools. I mean, no, Norwalk, Connecticut come to mm-hmm. mind that had like a great program, you know, and a big competitive band. Um, Dartmouth, Mass, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's those those great powerhouse groups, and then there are much smaller groups with different kinds of focus. I went to Enrico Fermi, is how it was said, supposedly his name is Fermi, but, uh, high school there in Enfield, and there were two high schools, and they were so part of Part of that was, you know, meant there was two high schools with two smaller-ish bands. You know, maybe they had seventy or something. You know, I don't know exactly people in the groups. And 
um, you know, what, what I credit our director at the time, Mr. Sam Macaluso, for was really opportunity because he just had a lot going on all the time and some special programs that we put on. And sometimes we were doing crazy stuff like taking a, a spring trip where we did the marching band show, you know, like mm-hmm. wasn't that quite the cycle. And we'd go on this trip and like compete in marching band, you know, put a little drum line with a, with footwork in and with drill, you know, and jazz on this end combo and like concert band, like all in the same like Disney trip or whatever. <laughs> crazy, crazy. So like I said, just it, there was experience and an opportunity to be active in that in that way. But um and I I did marching band I think like a year and a half of my career in high school but and then i got into it it's like when i saw first i just we were on a trip and like i wasn't in it i was just in the jazz band and then i just heard i just got into the energy of it so then i joined up and then like somebody came from umass you know from umass drum line to like help us out or we we went to the umass band day and got exposed to that group and then of course you just get your mind blown, right? And then Tom Hannum becomes like a celebrity, you know. Uh, so yeah, I kind of made my way later, as I said, over over to UMass, which was really life changing. I mean, Tom is just one of those mentor kind of people that's very impactful in people's lives, as as was many people, but including George uh, George Parks, who was the band director there at UMass, famously. I know he saved. I know he saved a lot of people's lives. I mean, he's such a fantastic high piper, you know, a musician and band leader. And uh, you know, I know he he had a great impact on me and, and impressed, made an impression on me. One, all right, one story that come, came to mind, just showing his his heart and his consideration for individuals. When I did a senior recital, it was scheduled. A few of the other Drumline members were in my recital. And then President Clinton invited the band to play at like a rally he was doing, uh, like con- concurrent with my recital date. But I mean, George Parks, he didn't have to say anything to me, but he, he asked Tom to, you know, request that I go see him in his office. And he like explained it to me and he totally, he didn't ask me to change my date. I mean, I guess he maybe presented that, but he said, you know, he excused everybody that was on my program and this is what's happening. And then he said, well, could you do it again for the band? Like he felt badly that potential audience wasn't going to be available. So we did like part, we did a repeat at least of part of the recital and, you know, and like the entire UMass band came to it. <laughs> no, you know, that was George Parks doing. And I think I was a relatively stable person and a leader. And I think what a man like that has done for how many people who like needed him, you know, saved a lot of people's lives. That's, that's tremendous. And it sounds like that was almost a, a way of getting you to think about gigging in some ways where it's like you get, you, you take now multiple shots at your, recital you you already have a you have a um 
a format. You, it's like, you're, you've already learned all the stuff. You might as well take, you might as well play it for this group of people. That's definitely going to love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. I was gigging a lot in those days. I mean, I started, uh, in high school because I was studying and, and because we had that daily class experience. We also did like do a whole dance set or two dance sets for like the lions club or whatever. And then, um, I got into like the regional and uh, the Connecticut All-State Jazz Group, and through those things, met other musicians around the state. And then we're like, you know, you're driving from Enfield to Manchester, or whatever, and we're playing jazz, and playing in the corner in a pizza shop, you know, and like making seven dollars or something, but meeting the other good players. So I pretty much started playing gigs, at least by the time I was driving, and had opportunities, you know to play with some older people. By the time I was at UMass, it was like, you're, you're playing in seven ensembles and you're, and then gigs on the weekends, you know, crazy. But that's the time to do it, right? To live like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't have a family. <laughs> yeah. To, I mean, to the work. best, one of the, some of the most productive time in my life was at UMass when I had like, I lived in a dorm with a uh, mismatched person, you know, not an on-purpose roommate, and mm -hmm. like they're no chemistry, and like they're a partier or whatever. Right. So and the dorm was like a closet, so there's no reason to be there. And actually, that's what you want. So you're there six hours to sleep, mm -hmm. you know, and on the weekend it's gigs or it's a drum corps camp or something. Yeah. And you know, I look back at that as like ideal mm -hmm. for a period, you know. Right. Now, I, I enjoy my house and my children and my spouse and my dog now. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course, yes. Before you go to college, but while you were still in high school, are you involved, in, aside from the, all the music stuff, are you doing anything else? Are you involved in sports? Are you doing any student government or church-related or anything else that's filling out your time? Uh, boring answer is no. Once I... Uh, Oh, one, the, as soon as I signed up for lessons, that was my bug. And that, that's what I did. You know, I was practicing. At age 10, I probably didn't practice two hours a day yet, but I consumed everything I was given. Mm. You know, and by 14, two or three hours a day, you know, throughout high school. You know. What leads you to go to Berkeley for those couple of years? Well, it was another opportunity and exposure thing. Our director, high school, Sam Macluso, he just took us to festivals, and that was, we'd go to Berkeley and do the jazz festival, playing big band and combo. You know, you meet some faculty. And it really, I mean, it kind of was like, I didn't know anything. So I knew Berkeley, you know. Like, I'd been to Berkeley and UConn. And I just went, I'll, I'll do that. I had been doing, I saw through the uh, AP classes or whatever in high school. You know, like I, I got a C in calculus. That was my last, you know, that, that was a bad grade for me, but it was my last semester of like high school. You know, it's just like survive this calculus class to get the college credit. Um, but, but so my point is by the time I was a senior, like other people, I was ready to do, just do what I wanted to do. So that was kind of, I just wanted to go, I knew I wanted to go to college, it was just the thing, but I wanted to play drums. 
So that was the logical choice. You know? Yeah, and it was a, it was a couple of years of that, and then actually, basically, my dad said after that second year, you know, I I don't know how we're going to send you back. You know, you get a couple scholarships, but it's out of state, private school, mm-hmm. and it just kind of you know it just stops. So I didn't go to school that third what would have been my third year of college. I did play. I played jazz every week with older guys. I, and that winter it snowed every Wednesday when I was playing my jazz gig. <laughs> I got toe mater skills backing down these alleys in the snow. Uh, and, but, and I went like other folks that contributed to like the local high schools teaching. And it, that was really that the piece of it that kind of went, I, I guess I loved. I loved the teaching part along along with the other things. So that was when I went, I think I should get a music ed degree and have that credential. And that led me to, to UMass, like I said, where you could kind of do everything. You know, in a gorgeous campus and valley atmosphere there. Really, really pretty place there, UMass in Amherst. When you go to UMass, are you, is that, that's a, is, that's, pri, no, that's a state school, right? Yeah, right, University yeah. of Massachusetts. And, and you're, are you in, considered in-state at this point? No. Okay. <laughs> that's not how it works, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I went through the same thing at, uh, at Indiana, doing my doctorate after a time. And that was pretty pretty much paid for through a nice scholarship and then through assistantship. Well, I had to pay for some credits, and they were really you know out of state. We bought a house. We and my wife was a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. We we even brought my children in to a uh, appeal hearing to try to convince them that we were in state. Yeah, but it was a no. It was no deal because. It's it's you're not in state for tuition paying purposes because in their eyes you are there to go to school. Even though I know I went my in laws live here. I don't li- I have no ties or responsibilities anywhere else. We we pay taxes here. Right. My wife's a public servant. You know? No deal. You're, it's funny. You're you're. Uh... It's like you're bringing back all these memories of 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 when I was trying to get in state in North Carolina for my for my grad work, and it's just like it's such a slog. And <laughs> I've heard there are places where, like, even in a two year program like that, if you live there and establish residency, even while you're going to school, that you're you can get that in state that second year. Well, just that's what I got. That's awesome. But that was it was a. I mean, it was, yeah, it was just like, it was so much, it was like the, all the paperwork stuff, just and yeah. meetings and yeah. That's the system side of things. You have to engage systems and know how to play the game, as they say, and even if you're an artistic person. Yeah. Kind of a last note on Berkeley. I mean, did you, I obviously, okay, so they, you couldn't, you had to figure out something else financially to, and you know, it, it worked, but did you like studying there? Yeah. Um, 
I, I would say I was much happier at UMass okay. because of the environment, you know, a traditional campus. You could say hello to any person that you saw, right? Like that thing. And, and there's like, it's a campus, there's trees and grass. Um, the community of a marching band, among other things, you know, um, the fraternity almost of the UMass drumline, those were things that were enriching, you know, that weren't at, at Berkeley. That was kind of cliquish. And then your campus is this middle of downtown Boston, which was also cool and I valued it and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And the teachers, I studied with Ed Uribe my first full year there, uh, rest his soul. And then Ian Froman and Alan Hall were my drum set teachers. And uh, Dave Weigert was another who was uh, one of my ensemble teachers that happened to be a drummer. The reading bands, as a scholarship student, you served by playing in a reading band, which was once a week for two hours. And set, bring your symbols, set up the kit, and like student projects. And they come in, hand you a chart, handwritten, right? Read it down. Then the student or the uh, faculty facilitator or some combination give a little bit of comment or maybe rehearse a spot or two and then roll the tape and play it down again, which is, I enjoyed that. To me, you know, I always, I like the studio environment and that kind of like, make this great now kind of attitude. So that was awesome. Some of the playing opportunities. And, and you could sneak into, I was 17 when I started there. You could sneak into like jazz clubs. You know, it's like, it was quiet and small and, you could like sneak in and get a rolling rock and listen to your teachers or whoever play. <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah, really cool experience. But I'm grateful to have had all those experiences. Yeah, yeah, for sure. we'll get you part two with Andy Smith next week. Stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2020 film One Night in Miami, starring Kingsley Benadir as political leader Malcolm X, Eli Gorey as legendary boxer Cassius Clay, Aldous Hodge as football superstar Jim Brown, and Leslie Odom Jr. as the soul singer and entrepreneur Sam Cooke. The movie was written by Kemp Powers, adapted from his own play, and directed by Regina King. The movie was nominated for three Academy Awards, including one for Powers and a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Odom Jr. This movie was part of the film Awards run last year, but I finally got to see it over the last couple of weeks. I'll admit it started out a bit slow, but revved way up in the second half. The plot is based on a real event. Following the victory of then Cassius Clay, who would publicly announce himself as Muhammad Ali the very next day, overly heavily favored champion Sonny Liston in February of 1964 in Miami, 
Clay, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke find themselves invited to a hotel room booked and roomed in by Malcolm X to celebrate the victory. This meeting did actually occur. A 22-year-old Ali, just becoming heavyweight champion of the world, 39-year-old Malcolm X, about to break away from the leadership of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Muslim Brotherhood, 30-year-old Jim Brown, about to wrap up his playing career, and 33-year-old Sam Cooke, at an apex moment for his popularity as a singer. All were at this hotel for some period of time that night, and screenwriter Kemp Powers imagined what kind of conversations were had by them. Because this is imagined, the public and private side of each character gets revealed. In particular, the conversations between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke are incredibly compelling. They get very deep into the concepts of selling out, of being challenged, and trying to make it in the world successfully in the 1960s. Odom Jr., in particular, really gets to dig in and show his acting chops, as well as, fortunately, his singing chops in the role of Sam Cooke. Leslie Odom Jr. is perhaps best known for originating the role of Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton, for which he won a Tony Award. What's really fascinating is that as an enormous Sam Cooke fan, I was very worried about hearing Odom Jr.'s versions of Sam's songs. He doesn't have the same type of voice, but it still really works, and I was very impressed. But what's also sad to think about is that these interactions between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke would be very short-lived because both men would be dead through assassination over the next year. All of this is under the direction of Oscar-winning actor Regina King, who shows a masterful touch as a film director, and you look forward to seeing more of what she can do and what the rest of the cast can do going forward. It's a really good film that is available on Amazon to stream. Check out One Night in Miami. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I will catch you next time for part two with Andy Smith. Until then.